Uh, so, yeah, it's good to be back, uh, and it's good to have you all here safe and sound. And uh, thankfully, the Lord was very gracious to us during this storm, uh, considering what it could have been. And so it uh, caused me to think as Shri and I were, were talking about hurricanes last week and you know, difficulties of trying to plan a service without a voice and without power and all those things, um, about how hurricanes are a part of living in a fallen world. They're the, the, the groanings of a planet infected by sin, that the curse has affected all of, of creation, and these birth pains are going to keep coming until the consummation, until the return of Christ. And so these are just signs of our age, this final age, until the age to come when Christ returns. And so when we look at something like a hurricane, it's hard to see any, anything good that comes out of destruction of life and property. But like forest fires, hurricanes do some good. Um, they actually serve a purpose in nature. Hurricanes remove the weak branches, the dead trees. If you have trees right now, they are thinned out, and you're going to be doing a lot less raking or blowing or whatever you do this, this time of year. But the dead branches are gone. The dead trees are gone. And they are uprooted, and um, whatever remains becomes stronger. Now, I'm not worried about the old oak trees in my neighborhood. They've been here through many, many hurricanes. And every hurricane, the roots get deeper, and they get, they get stronger. It's those those palm trees that have shallow roots are the ones that always gets tip, get tipped over. What does this have to do with our sermon? Um, it does have to do with our sermon. Just like tension in the church, hurricanes are difficult. When you face uh, tension or disagreement in the church, it's uncomfortable and it's painful during it. But if you can weather the storm, you will come out stronger on the other end. Because just like hurricanes and forest fires, tension, disagreement removes the obstinate, the rebellious, the divisive. Like a storm that, that sweeps through, if you're not rooted, you're going to be blown away, and you should be. When you come out the other side, you come out more deeply rooted, stronger, and more united. I've seen it at this church several times. During a particularly uh, tense time in my tenure here, one member told me as they were leaving, uh, reluctantly, he wasn't driving the ship, um, he said, God is pulling out a lot of weeds. It was kind of sad to hear someone say, uh, they weren't weeds, but they weren't helpful either. And so they needed to be uprooted for them to grow, and they need to be uprooted for us to grow. And so addressing and correcting and removing unhealthy people or doctrines is a necessary step in building a healthy church. It is part of the process. It, it has to be done. And so times that stretch and challenge the church also will prove beneficial. Because if you are rooted, if you stand firm, you will come out stronger. This doesn't work for man-made things, but this does work for living things. When you get stretched and when you get pulled and when you get brought through a storm, you come stronger on the other end. And so in our text this morning, Paul is going to stress a concern for a pure, unified bride of Christ. Because he wants Christ's bride to be unified in doctrine, 
to be unified in, in, in hope and in, in, in joy and in fellowship. And here's the contrast, because the false teachers that he just warned us about last week or two weeks ago, they only bring division and they bring selfishness, not selflessness. And here's where the teachings of Paul and the teachings of the false, selfish, man-centered teachers come to a head. The spiritual war bubbles to the surface. There's a contention for the faith. And we're only going to handle three verses this morning, but they are packed with practical application. So, uh, in your Bibles, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenes and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning opening your word. It is inerrant and it is infallible because it is breathed forth by your spirit. And it is helpful and it is beneficial and it is uplifting because it points us to your son. It instructs us, it corrects us, it challenges us, it encourages us. Lord, may it do all those things this morning. May we as your church hold firm to our faith. May we stand in a good conscience. May we wage the warfare against the evil one, our flesh, and the world around us. May we not be lulled to sleep by a false sense of peace, but we bear the name of the hated one who is hated by the world. That is our identity, but also that identity, that hated one loves us. Loved us enough to lay down his life for us, that we may be his. And we never take that lightly, that our Savior died for us. That we might bear his name, that we might uphold his doctrine, that we might guard and protect and build up his church for his glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so picking up in verse 18. This charge, we dealt with this a few weeks ago, but if you weren't here or if you don't remember, this is a really helpful word, this word charge. It's not just orders, it's not just commands, it is orders given on behalf of a superior. It's a military term. Same idea is in verse 3. I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, uh, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There's an order. There's one higher than me. Paul is saying, Christ has given me an order for you. Charge them, order them not to give different doctrines. Not on your own authority, not on my authority, but on the authority of the one by whom I speak. Then we have a charge, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The charge continues. If you read the book of 1 Timothy, it is one long charge. The one, chapter 1 is almost a, a long introduction. The charge begins in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then after that, there's a series of directives. Every major section begins with a command. 
Paul is telling young Timothy how to put the church in order by a series of instructions. And he's given this this charge, not just ordered, but he is entrusted with something valuable. This isn't just uh, do this. It's not a set of orders that is impersonal, that is apart from God's work. This is valuable. I entrust, you don't entrust someone to something unless it has value. This valuable deposit that is given to you. Let's look at what that valuable deposit is. Um, I want to turn to 2 Timothy, next book over. Paul used this word entrust a lot with, with Timothy. He loves Timothy. Timothy is his dear child in the faith, and he is putting a lot of trust in him. What is he entrusting to him? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit, the sound words of faith. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Guard the good deposit because this is what guards the sheep. This deposit is given to Timothy, but it does not end with Timothy. Just a few verses later, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul does here. Every step of the way, your truth is from Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is from Christ Jesus. Your strength is from Christ Jesus. This is what ministry looks like, Timothy. And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the nature of Christian ministry. It does not end with us. Too many pastors stand in the pulpit or sit in their office and think, I'm the, I'm the last one to be here. The goal is always to raise up children in the faith. The goal is always to identify other godly men who can stand, as Jonathan prayed, generation after generation after generation. We stand here because there have been those faithful in the gospel for centuries. What I entrust to you, Timothy, entrust to others also. Why? This is not a call to a desk job. This is not a call to a simple teaching ministry. What does Paul say next? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You are called to be a shepherd and a soldier. This is not just an intellectual pursuit. This is a spiritual battle. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. Paul deals with three occupations here. Soldier, athlete, farmer. All three of them, hard work, dedication, overtime for a particular goal. There's no easy payoff in any one of them. This is what he associates Christian ministry with. I'm entrusting this to you. Entrust this to others. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be a long labor. The goal, the finish line, the end of the battle, the crops are further on down the line. But know that they will come. This is what Paul is setting Timothy up for. So back in 1 Timothy, this is why he says, I entrust this to you, Timothy, my child. Raise up other children. And like I said, I think part of the problem, I meet so many pastors who have no idea, no thought to discipling younger men, have no plan if something ever happens to them. How many churches put all of their eggs into one basket, so to speak, And it ends up being disastrous when he fails them. 
when he falls, when he gets sick, when he retires. This is a perpetual call of a treasure entrusted from generation to generation. As Paul did to Timothy, Timothy will do likewise to those coming along. Uh, that's what we're going to do with elders in chapter 3. All right, so let's move on. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What are the prophecies? We don't know. We don't know exactly what was said, but we, we get a picture from other passages. This is a pattern that goes uh, all the way back to the Old Testament. Let's look at Numbers 11. Uh, this is a parallel passage to Exodus 18, where Moses is just exhausted. He's doing too much on his own. He needs help. His wise father-in-law tells him to appoint men uh, so he can have some help. But notice how this process is described. This is uh, Numbers 11, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel. These are men who are already functioning in a leadership role, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Similar terms of what's used in the New Testament. Bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. There is an appointment, there is a unification, and I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they will bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. There's a lot we can glean from this, but in a sense, the Lord will always provide for his people. We looked at this in week one in 1 Timothy. The Lord's concern is that there are good shepherds over his people. That he takes godly men, he stands with them, he, he takes his spirit the, the, the gifts that he's given to one leader and gives them to another so that the leaders don't bear that burden on their own. And so we don't know what this, this prophecy looks like, uh, but we see a lot of it in the New Testament. We see, um, it's not on the screen, but Acts 16, 2, briefly, um, Timothy is well regarded and spoken of highly by others. Uh, verse 2, he was spoken of well by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Um, and then again, back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So I'm saying all this for a reason. We'll see in a moment. Chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have that was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Practice these things. Whatever it was, it was for ministry. Whatever it was, it was for building up of the church. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. So that all may see your progress, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will both save yourself, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Notice the pattern here that Paul is, is building on. You're given a charge, you're giving orders from Christ Jesus himself. They're passed on from leader to leader, from generation to generation. You're entrusted with something valuable. And you are appointed. There are, there, are, there are godly men who confirm an external call on you. There should be an internal call. There's a desire that we'll deal with in chapter 3. But the internal call of a man to ministry should never be without an external call. It is unbiblical. It is unwise. And it is foolish to think you can put yourself in a place of leadership. Self-appointing is reckless. And there is something that is confirming and encouraging and building up when godly older men affirm in you. When the spirit that has brought them through ministry for years 
places a hand on you and says, young man, I see the Lord's work in your life. I will pray for you. I will counsel you. I will walk with you. I will correct you. Because I see that you care for Christ's sheep as I do. And this young man is built up by the prophecies of these older men. And that's why Paul actually appeals to them. Because remember, we talked about Timothy most likely is either sickly or, or timid or all the above. So that in accordance with the pro- prophecies previously made about you, that by them, the prophecies, you may wage a good warfare. So when Timothy is tempted to be timid, when he's tempted to be scared, when those who are going to bring division or come in his face in the church come against him, he can be reminded of the encouragement of these elder saints who laid hands on him and prophesied over him. That he can be reminded that the Lord has called him to this. That it is Christ's strength. That he has been entrusted with Christ's church and and Christ's doctrine, his person and his work. So that by those prophecies, by that confirmation that came outside of you, we live in, in such an internal, subjective culture. In the church, there must be external confirmation. That is what you draw on when you must wage the good warfare. This is often translated fight the good fight. Sounds good, um, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the term. The, the, the root word in both um, wage and, and warfare uh, is where we get our word strategy. This is not just a boxing match. This is a tactical battle. This is a military campaign that requires strategy. It is a battle fought on many fronts that requires forethought and discipline and discernment. You are not just fighting a fight. That's part of it. But you are waging war with wise and tactical warfare. And you are called to hold down your front. Bodybacham gives a great uh, military analogy for this, where he talks about Christian ministry as, in, as uh, defending a castle. And so when you're defending a castle and the, the army comes from every direction, you can only worry about the, 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 the wall that you're on. I've got the south side. I have to trust that you have the east and you have the north. And not just that. Maybe you're the archers who are shooting the enemies from far away. Maybe you're the cavalry who's riding on horses uh, on, on the ground. Maybe you're the, the, the infantry that has hand-to-hand combat. Everyone's battle looks different. But I'm not responsible for everyone else. But I am responsible to make sure that the enemy doesn't come over my part of the wall. That I do the repairs and the protection necessary. And I must have faithful men in other parts of the wall and other parts of the ground who are going to bring this up with me. And the same idea, the same root is used in 2 Corinthians 10. This is a very common theme. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. It is not by accident that Paul uses all these soldier and, and, and warfare references. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
Again, this is not a desk job. I think too many guys think that they're going to get up, they're going to preach a sermon, and they're going to go home, and everyone's going to leave them alone. That's why so many leave the ministry. And this is not just for pastors. Every Christian, to follow Christ means to follow him in the battle against his enemy, sharing in his suffering, taking on his adversaries, who now will put a target on your back. When you decide to follow Christ, you are given a uniform. It's not military fatigues, it is righteous garments. But that makes you a target for the enemy. That puts a bullseye on your front and your back. Because you have chosen a side. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, it means it's not going to be easy. They're going to hate you like they hated me. And there's going to be a battle from every side. But know that I have gone before you. I am your rear guard. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There is a war going on, but the battle has already been won. Yet this is what we walk in. Here's how Paul continues. For the weapons, he describes this warfare. The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but the divine power to destroy strongholds. It's not talking about the crusades here. We will never subjugate anyone into faith in Christ. The real strongholds are not the military facilities. It is hard hearts. It is wicked and obstinate sinners. And we're not destroying military installments. We're not turning over tanks. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are in a battle for minds, hearts, and souls. And it is so that they obey Christ, not so that they look like us. Not to win arguments. Not to make the culture look like the church, but to make people submit their hearts to Jesus Christ. To repent of their sin and turn to him. To stop serving a master who is marching them to destruction. But for them to take up the flag of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and serve him and his army. And in order to do that, you must fight against arguments and lofty opinions, being ready, verse 6, to punish every disobedience. We're going to deal with that in verse 20. Not only must we fight outside the church, but inside. And we don't, we don't stop when we just say a nice word of correction and, you know, maybe they'll, they'll figure it out eventually. No, we must be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This shows maturity, that you are ready to stand against false ideas, that you are ready to stand in a spiritual battle, and that you are ready to make the difficult decision when those who wage war against your master rear their ugly heads. This is the charge of every pastor, and by extension, every Christian. You're brought into a battle whether you realize it or not. 
And my desire as a pastor and Jesse's desire as a pastor is that you be equipped, that you know how to take these, these thoughts captive, that you know how to, how to recognize the truth and spot error, that you know how to defend the faith lovingly, respectfully, but boldly and confidently. And that you're not afraid to correct and put back in place what is out of order. We're not called to fight in a physical sense. But we're not hippies either. We're warriors. Some fights are good. This fight, the fight for the gospel... The fight for this, the, the sound doctrine that Jesus Christ, Son of God, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, unchangeable, undefiled, took on flesh, walked among us. That he went before us, the life that we couldn't live, perfect in every regard, yet slain for sinners. He died so that sin might no longer have dominion over his people. He rose again that they might live in righteousness with him. That's worth fighting for. That is what Paul is speaking about in Ephesians 6. We read this for our corporate reading, but I want us to walk back through it. There's all kinds of little fun charts and flannel graphs that were made for, for, for kids with these, with these armors. And I, and I hope this doesn't, that this doesn't just remain with, with children and that we, we teach them what this actually looks like. This entire amazing letter where Paul gives instruction about salvation and marriage and employment and all these other things. He says, finally, I'm giving you all this instruction and I'm sending you out in the world. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why do you need to be strong in the Lord if everything's just butterflies and rainbows? Because it's difficult. Because there's struggle. Because there's persecution. Because there's tension. Because there's division. How do we get through it, Christian? We put on the whole armor of God. He has not left us alone, He has not left us without recourse that you may, able, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is war language. And if you thought you were going to be a pacifist as a Christian, I'm here to tell you different. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're Westerners. We don't talk or think about the spiritual realm. That's just kind of weird stuff. There are demons. There are spirits. There are principalities. Satan has legions of armies. And they are powerless against our king. But they have influence. They wage against you, your neighbors. Your neighbors probably serve them. But this is real. This is what we walk into every day. And those of you who kind of sleepwalk through the Christian life, you're playing right into the hand. Every day, 
We must take up the whole armor of God that you may, able to, may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having felt, fastened on the belt of truth, that holds everything together. We start with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, if your chest is exposed and you get shot in the heart, you are dead. Without righteousness, you are dead. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. If you've ever fought hand-to-hand, face-to-face, you need good footing. The gospel is your footing. It is your solid ground that you stand on. You're not pushed to and fro. You're not not, not sliding around in this battle because you got cleats on. And they are dug into the rock of ages. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Anyone ever felt the flaming darts of the evil one? Anyone ever felt attacked? What is our only hope when we believe the lies of the world around us, the lies of our own heart and our own mind? It is our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our shield. That is our protector with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. Protect the dome. You want the helmet of salvation. That is what keeps you alive. Having put on the readiness given, oh, backed up a little bit, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our only offensive weapon. These are all the armaments of a Roman soldier. We have one offensive weapon, and it is enough. This is why week after week, day after day, we open the scriptures, and we encourage you to open the scriptures. When you struggle and when you, when you are, are weakened in a fight, you have heard me say this before, I will ask you if you are reading the scriptures. Because rarely is the scripture you're reading that day the one that you need that day. But it is day after day, week after week, when the battle comes, when the flaming arrows come, you are able to call to mind what you have put into remembrance. You have stored up this, this treasury that knocks down arrows and, and swords and missiles and bullets. Because you have hidden God's word in your heart. And when the sword comes out, it leaves everything naked and exposed before God. And the word of God and the spirit of God fights for us. So many people try to fight in their own strength. And then he goes into praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Both in 1 Timothy and in Ephesians, warfare is immediately followed by prayer. Next week, we're going to talk about prayer in the beginning of chapter 2. You can't do it without prayer. You can't do it without humbling yourself before the the, the true and living God, before his throne, knowing I have nothing to offer. I need your strength. I need your provision. I need your victory. Are you ready for battle? That's my question for you this morning. Do you know how to resist the devil? Do you know how to extinguish the flaming arrows? Do you know how to refute false doctrine?
Do you know how to confront the lies within your own head? Do you know how to spot what is dangerous and harmful and wicked dressed up in a pretty package? Do you look at every day as if this is my boot camp? I'm going to get up and do my push-ups and my jumping jacks even when I don't feel like it because I need to be ready as the bullets will start flying if they have not already. Are you ready for battle? We are called, as Timothy is, to wage the good warfare. And when the battle comes, you do not give up your post. You do not give way to the adversaries. You stand your ground. There's a lot. You realize I'm doing a lot on wage warfare, right? This is such a big part of the Christian life. Why? Because inside the walls, this pillar and buttress of truth, inside the church is Christ's most treasured possession, his bride. How could you dare let an enemy in? How could you let some man, some woman who means your wife, harm? Let him sit at your table. And the sound words that are entrusted to Timothy, Timothy, this is our fortification. Many churches struggle and are struggling because the shepherd leaves the gate wide open. And they invite the wolves to sit at the table and expect there to be peace with the sheep. It's foolish. No matter how strong you began, no matter how strong you think you are, if you do not hold firm, if you do not wage the warfare, you will fall. You will let off your guard. The wolves will come in. This is why verse 19 continues the idea. Wage the good warfare, holding faith. In a battle, you want to fight from high ground. A place of advantage. Remember we talked about the, the, the shoes of the gospel. You want to have sure footing. You want to make sure that your enemy doesn't overtake you. This is holding fast to sound doctrine. The faith. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done. The king of ages from the doxology we looked at in verse 17. The one who came to save sinners in verse 15. This is holding the faith. That is our high ground. That is our place of advantage. Sorry to tell you, it's not your ability to win an argument. It's not your strength or your confidence. We hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the only one who has won the battle and who will bring us through it. You can't stand in the battle if you don't hold the faith and you don't do it with a good conscience. John Stott explained this beautifully. He talks about the objective uh, truth of the gospel and the subjective truth. What do I mean by that? The objective truth of the faith, the, 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 the facts of the faith, these are common to everyone. We share a common faith. We hold fast to the person and work of Jesus Christ, everything we've been talking about. That is objective. That uh, does not change. That is unique to, or that is uh, common to all, every believer. But there's a subjective good conscience. There is an internal character that each one of us must have and hold on to. 
I can't hold on to your conscience. You can't hold on to mine. Each one of us must stoke and build up and protect our conscience. We need both. We need the external truth and the internal verification. This same idea is in verse 5 of chapter 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Same idea is in chapter 3, verse 9. Deacons, if, you, if the deacons are going to be in the fight with you, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. As opposed to the seared conscience in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that the later, in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? If you take a hot iron and you press it against your arm to the point where you get a third degree burn, you can no longer, you have no nerve endings. You can no longer feel pain. You would cut yourself and not even know it. You would harm yourself and be none the wiser because all of your pain receptors are seared. This is what happens when you desensitize or sear your, your conscience. You no longer make it sensitive to the things that will harm it. You've taken a hot iron to what is to save you. John Calvin says that a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. This is true. We live in a culture of seared consciences. Ah, it's not that big a deal. It is sad how many Christians, I spoke to one this week, who didn't see the harm in a man calling himself a woman or a woman calling herself a man. And I had to explain how this is, this is a Christian who's been a Christian for a very long time. How this is wicked. How this goes against God's natural order. We have seared consciences. People get their news and their information from the world around them, not the word of God, and they wonder why they can't spot these things. They wonder why most Christians think that we're born innocent. Ligonier and Lifeway, I don't know if you guys, any, any of you guys read the uh, re results of the survey of evangelicals. Things like 65% of evangelicals think that everyone's born good. A majority of evangelicals think that there are more than one way to God, that Jesus is not the only way, that all religions are valid. This goes on and on and on and on and on. We live in a culture of seared consciences. And if you're not disciplined in wisdom and discernment, you are going to welcome in all sorts of heresies as is happening in Ephesus and as Paul is warning Timothy against. That's why he says, going back to verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience, period, by rejecting this, this is singular here. He sees the good faith or the, 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 the faith and a good conscience as one thing. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, singular, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. If you stray from sound doctrine, if you stray from assurance in, in Christ, if you don't hold them with a good conscience, you will become a victim in this battle. Your faith will be shipwrecked. What a great analogy for this. Paul talks about in Ephesians that he wants you not to, no longer to be children, not tossed to and fro. It is like going out in a storm and turning off the engine. 
and just getting tossed to and fro. You rejecting your, your faith is like a ship rejecting its ballast or its rudder. And you think you're just going to float along. If you're not surely and steadily anchored to the rock of your salvation, what do you think is going to happen to you in a storm? You're going to crash against the rocks. You're going to be shipwrecked. What is Paul's concern for the church? He wants them to sail. He wants them on, on, on smooth waters. That is holding the faith. That is having a good conscience. Not be shipwrecked. How many people take this lightly, stray from the faith, become deconstructors or de-churched? Why? Most of us, many churches, you're taught to hold on to your good works. Put a bumper sticker in your car, put a, put a bracelet around your wrist, remember that every time something gets difficult, and everything's going to be okay. How well does that work out? These silly platitudes won't keep us on calm seas. It is only through Christ and his strength and our recognition of our dependence on him. We must hold fast to him. Paul's concern, Timothy's concern, and my concern is that you do not shipwreck your faith. You do not let down the sails and hand the wheel to your flesh or the world around you. This is why we see many uprooted trees in the storm, because they have no roots. Those who are rooted will not be shipwrecked. They will not be pulled out by a little gust of wind. I want men, women who have roots, who are ready for battle, who are firm in their faith. This is what we do week in and week out. You are showing up to get your marching orders. You are showing up to be, to, be, to be trained so that when you go out into the battlefield, you will not lay as a casualty. More and more, it feels like we're going out into a battlefield. And so Paul is addressing this. He's talking about the shipwreck of their faith, and he names names. It's not very nice of you, Paul. That's not very Christian-like of you, Paul. How could you embarrass someone like that? They should be. There's a precedent of Paul naming names. This is not to be sensational. This is for the purity of the bride. This is because there's a war. And someone wants to play for the other side. Two of them. Hymenes and Alexander. Uh, there's some speculation about who Alexander is. It's a, it's a common name. Um, but Hymenes, we kind of know who he is. Turn over to 2 Timothy. What's, what's his deal? Couldn't be that big a deal, right? Why is Paul calling him out by name? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Avoid a reverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. That's not good. Among them are Hyomenes and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Ooh, that's definitely not good. 
they are upsetting the faith of some. Why do we care about the doctrine and purity of the church? Why is he calling him out by name? Because he's leading others astray. Not only does he want to shipwreck his own faith, but he's wanting to shipwreck others. And this is 2 Timothy. Apparently, he's still causing trouble years later. Even Paul can't put back in order what is, what is so out of order. But what he does here, he does out of love. Whom I have handed over to Satan. You want to say that Jesus Christ has already returned and you think that's it? You think this is what happens after Christ returns. I'm going to turn you over to Satan for a while. That sounds harsh, but that is the most loving, gracious thing you can do to someone in that position. Because excommunication is not to be this final punitive step. We don't determine someone's eternal destination. This is a severe step for sure, but it is in order to teach a lesson. I'm going to turn you over to Satan. This, why? Because as he goes on to say later, the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. This is the fortress of Jesus Christ. You want to stray from the camp and fraternize with the enemy? We're going to put you outside the camp for a while. You want to think lightly of sin and, and, and wickedness? Go. Go in that other camp. You don't appreciate the peace, love, and joy that is in the church of Jesus Christ? Go see how the other side lives. I'm going to turn you over them for a moment. This is why we have church discipline. Hopefully it never gets to excommunication, being cut out of fellowship. But that step is in, is in place, not by mean old Paul, but by Jesus Christ himself. Look at Matthew 18. Notice the process here. You hope you never have to get past step one. <coughs> Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, if there's sin you see in another, go and tell him. First step, church discipline. Someone comes to me, hey, so-and-so sinning, what are you going to do about it? Well, you noticed it. Your brother, your sister, you talk to them. Let me know how that goes. Hopefully, everything stops here. 99% of church discipline stops here, thankfully. At least in, in this church it has. Hey, there's an issue here. Lovingly, privately, the action is corrected, there is repentance, and not that they won't struggle again. We are looking for penitent hearts. And if you are penitent and you are repentant, uh, we, will, we will walk with you a thousand times over. If, you, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother, absolutely. So many of us have had difficult conversations with one another and we're strengthened after it. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, if the person doesn't listen, now we've got to bring a couple other people in. Here's what you're doing. Here's what, here's what Scripture says. Hopefully they will listen to their brothers and sisters. If the first step doesn't work, if the second step doesn't work, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Notice the context here. Jesus Christ is assuming that there's a church. 
This is pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection, pre-Pentecost. He's telling them for the future, take them to the church. There will be an ecclesia. There will be a gathering, an assembly of called out ones. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Don't treat an unrepentant sinner like one of the body. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These are orders from Christ Jesus the King. This is a charge. He's saying, if you do this, I will bind it in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The irony that this is the, this is the verse that people use who don't want to go to church. Every time someone brings up, well, two or more are gathered, right? Like, have you read Matthew 18? It assumes a church. Even if there's not a church, there's you, one other person, and two or three other people. There's at least four or five of you. This is not you in your living room playing church. Jesus assumes a church. And he's saying, if you are in agreement on discipline, I stand with you. If the conviction of my people is unified, I enforce it. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. It is sad when we have to do this. It is heartbreaking when we've had to do this. And we sit before the person and we open these scriptures And we pray that their heart is broken and they desire to be unified to the body. But when they stand in their sin, we must do how Paul instructs us. What's the issue here? A guy's sleeping with his father's wife. That guy, notice here, verse 4, that's, that's the context. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this affects the assembly of the body. It's not a private thing. If you've got a member of your body who is living in sexual immorality, it affects the assembly. For when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present with you. When the power, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of his flesh. Remember, it does not have to be final. Jesus allowed Job, still God then, and Peter to be sifted by the enemy for a time. For the destruction of the flesh, so that, here's the purpose, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is because we care about your soul. He goes on, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you need to go out of the world. That's not possible. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So many Christians fail to do this. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a violer, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's not an exhaustive list. That's a representative list. How many Churches and Christians let these things go on. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church with whom you are to judge? Another thing people love to quote, well, I don't judge. I'm not supposed to judge. If you're a Christian, you are commanded to judge what goes on inside the church. We don't make final judgments on anyone's behalf, but we do judge what is good for the church. God judges those outside, but you 
purge the evil person from among you. If someone continues in their evil ways, they must be purged. Why? Paul says that they may learn. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn. This is a teaching moment. This is part of discipleship. That they may learn. This, the, the way that it's, it's written in, in the Greek, um, it's an action being done to you with hopes of an outcome. We hope that, we, that when we do this to you, this particular outcome will come. Those who oppose the Lord of glory will learn. This is either a great discipleship tool or it reveals a false convert. And in those days, you were literally on your own. If you get excommunicated, if you're turned over to Satan, you've got nowhere to go. There's not another church down the street that's going to make you comfortable. There's not another body of believers that's just going to welcome you in. If you were outside of the church, you were outside. You were wandering in the wilderness. Having a church on every corner has taken a lot of the authority out of church discipline. Because there's another church right down the street who's going to welcome you in. And they don't realize that they are working against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That they are encouraging you and affirming you in your sinful behavior. We've seen this several times. The goal is that you be so miserable in your sin that you turn and repent and put your trust in Christ. That the Spirit convicts you of sin and restores you to the body and everyone celebrates. That is the goal. Because we love you. Because we love Christ and his bride. Because he died that we might wear spotless wedding garments. Would we allow each other to walk around with stains? Not that we're sin hunting, and this does not mean we go out. We're all sinners. Every one of us sins every day. We're talking about those unrepentant sinners, those with seared consciences, who bring in division, false teaching, blatant sin. To them, there is no neutrality. And to them, it is blasphemy, what Paul says here, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, that also sounds harsh, Paul. If you say what is evil is good and what is good is evil, if you twist the words of God, you are sinning against God. You are profaning his word, his law, his church. Church discipline is not a matter of pride. It's not a matter of being right. It's a matter of upholding God's holiness. Even again, like this seems harsh. Well, it's just one person. Paul references in 1 Corinthians 5 what Jesus says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Let me give you an example. This is a true story. You know, we use the shepherd-sheep analogy often. 2015 in Turkey, 26 families, over 1,500 sheep, graze every day. They're in this, this fertile pasture land. They're taking a break for breakfast. The shepherds sit down and eat. The sheep are right there, 1,500 of them. One sheep runs off a cliff. Another sheep runs off a cliff. Another sheep runs off a cliff. All 1,500 sheep. 
the entire livelihood of an entire village falls. 450 of them died instantly. The rest fell on a pillow of corpses. True story. Why is it important that we correct one sheep? Because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And we, like sheep, easily go astray. If you let one sheep run to their destruction, shipwreck their, their faith in a public way, how many stupid sheep do you think are going to emulate them and go right off the cliff with them? So in conclusion, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the body? If there was not enough application already, I think, and I want you to be aware of this, I think so many people have this idea that becoming a Christian is like moving into the Truman Show. You ever seen the Truman Show? The suburbs. The idyllic suburbs. Everyone's lawn is the same uh, you know, level. Everyone waves high and says nice things to you. You can just say, Jesus loves you, and have these, these, these nice little platitudes, and everything is going to be okay. I've heard people teach that. Not the Truman Show thing, but the idea is there. And this is what a lot of people try to create for themselves. Is there peace and joy in the Christian life? Absolutely. But where is that peace and joy? We are given an internal peace that passes understanding. We are given a, a, a joy and confidence in the work of our Lord on our behalf. But I think if we're honest, when we hear peace, we think circumstantial peace. We are never guaranteed circumstantial peace. Jesus guarantees we're going to have troubles. The peace that passes understanding is not that your, that your lawn is the, the, the right length and that all your, your bills are getting paid and that you never get sick. That is not Christian peace. The peace that passes understanding is that Jesus Christ has gone before me. He is my life. He is my hope. He is my salvation. In him I trust. It is his strength that carries me along. It is he who fights for me. And even Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He knew that battle would come. There would not be external peace between brother and sister and brother-in-law and sister-in-law and father and mother. There would be division over his name. But he came that we might have an abundant life, the internal confirmation of a good conscience, that in him there is love, in him there is joy, in him there is peace, in him there is patience, in him there is kindness, in him there is gentleness, in him there is self-control. Will we have peace outside? Sometimes. But if we don't, don't let your, your, your peace and your hope be circumstantial. We are called to battle. We are given armor. We are given faith. Hold it with a good conscience. Like we began, storms, difficult circumstances expose what is out of order in a way that peace cannot. We don't learn when things are going easy. We don't learn when the sun's out, we're just enjoying it. When do we pray? When it starts storming. When the battle starts raging. Because the Lord knows what we need. So, why do we care about order? Why do we care about discipline? Because every soul, every life matters. It matters for eternity. 
We are guarding the doctrine and the people of God. Every day you wake up, you have a uniform on if you are in Christ. And if Christ died for you, if your life is hidden in him, you're called to fight. But more importantly, it's not who you fight for, but who fights for you. He is the almighty God. Perfect in every way. He will not lie. He will not leave. He will not forsake. The battle is won. The victory is his. The enemy just hasn't seen it yet. But we know it by faith. Brothers and sisters, uh, let's go before him and let's praise our almighty God for what he has done. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are awesome. You are powerful. You are majestic. You are mighty. You are merciful. You are kind. You are patient. You are loving toward lost and obstinate sheep that you would draw us home. Lord, equip your people for the battle. Hold us secure in the faith. Teach us to hold on to what you've given us. Give us a clear conscience. May your spirit give us assurance of our salvation that we may stand boldly with you. And we know that as we walk out into the battle, our God is a mighty fortress. We are hidden in him. And though foes may assail We may see cannonballs and arrows. We are held in the mighty right hand of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who was, who is, who is to come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.